0: Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Jue Love. I'm your host. I'm very excited to have another guest today. This is episode 30, and I'm very humbled that we are able to continue this show about A Gift from Adversity. Before I introduce our guest tonight, I want to introduce you my book, which is A Gift from Adversity. I published this book in 2020 and it became Amazon number one new release in three different categories. The subtitle is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying and Homelessness. And I experienced all of this growing up in Japan and I came to America and this is the story that I wrote about my life. It's available on Amazon and I'm very excited to have a book about my adversity and also to have this podcast and having guests from all over the world. Today, we have Fred Ruttman, and he is coming from Toronto, Canada. Hi, Fred. Hi, Jerry. Thank you so much for being here tonight.
1: Thank you for having me. I was reading a little bit about your story, and it's just amazing the adversity you've gone through.
0: Thank you, yeah, it, it has been a big challenge in my life. And then I feel like uh, writing this book and then doing the show um, really brought me to a different place in my life where I can share my adversity without the stigma. So Fred, can you introduce yourself, your name and what you do to our audience?
1: Sure, um, my name is Fred Ruttman and I'm on a permanent medical disability right now because of all the adversity I've gone through. And I'm trying to be a little bit of a copycat of you because I'm trying to write a book about my adversity. And for those in the audience who have never written a book, oh my God, it is so much harder than you could imagine. So kudos to you for for doing this. My my story starts in the summer of 2009 when I had a bunch of episodes where I collapsed and hit my head. And it took the doctors a number of months to figure out what was happening to me. And what was happening to me was my heart was actually stopping and I was clinically dead um, about 20 times. So, clinically dead means your heart has stopped for 30 seconds or more and you've stopped breathing. So they eventually figured out what was going on. It is called a full heart block or a third degree heart block. And that means the electrical system in your heart essentially shuts down. So there's nothing to send the electrical signals that tell your atria and your ventricles to to pump blood. So your heart stops, your blood pressure goes to zero, you have no blood or oxygen in your brain and you collapse. And hit in my case, hit your head repeatedly and repeatedly. So um, they finally gave me a pacemaker to uh, replace the signals that weren't going through anymore. And uh, that was the start of this adventure. But unfortunately, with a condition like mine, there was no roadmap to recovery. So nobody gave me an MRI to check my brain or my neural. I didn't have a neurological test. Um, I had all these deficits. I lost an entire language out of my brain. My speech was impaired. I was slurring my words. My balance was gone. My depth perception was gone. Uh, my fine motor control was gone. And Nobody in the medical community came forward and said, here's a program for you. This is how you should be recovering for this. So I had to figure it out all on my own. Um, And I went back to things that had worked for me before, uh, being mostly exercise and trying to learn complicated things. So I went back to school and um, got a certification in social media. before all this happened, I was a college professor. Uh, I taught business, all sorts of courses, probably about 20 different courses. And a lot of that got wiped out of my brain as well from all these concussions. So I basically had to relearn everything. And
0: yeah. Well, Fred, thank you so much uh, for introducing yourself and then sharing your adversity. So uh, before uh, we dive in more, to your adversity part of it and do you have any website or social media that they can find more about your story?
1: I'm just starting to get into the social media so I have an Instagram which I think you can see on screen so my friend Deanna uh, lovingly gave me the nickname repeatedly dead Fred because that's what I was I was repeatedly dead and um, so you can go to my Instagram and find me there, or you can email me at repeatedly dot fred. Sorry, dot dead dot fred at gmail.
0: Okay, got it. Thank you very much for sharing that. So, Fred, you are in Toronto, Canada, and I know the hospital system is a little bit different than America. So, when these medical challenges were happening. Um, did you have any like doctors or therapists or friend like no support system that you were counting on like how um how was it like when you were going through these medical challenges
1: well i i'm fortunate that i do have a very good circle of friends and family that were able to contribute but um they they're limited in what they can do because if the doctors don't have uh, a path for you to to journey down uh, you know your lay friends certainly don't so while i was supported my my situation wasn't really changing because i still couldn't work and i still wasn't back to normal and uh i still have that same core group of friends and family uh to this day 12 years later and um I probably wouldn't been able to survive this without them. Yeah. So I, I can't I can't emphasize enough to anybody going through whatever your trauma, you know, even if it's not exactly like mine or yours, surrounding yourself with with good people makes it so much easier.
0: Yes, I totally understand. So now let's go back to the adversity part of it. So you were healthy, you were absolutely functioning fine. And then 12 years ago, like suddenly this happened?
1: Yes, correct. So I've always had a weight problem. Um, In the early 2000s, I was morbidly obese. I went up to 340 pounds. And then I lost a significant amount of weight. But this is not related to my problems with weight. Uh, the doctors actually don't know what caused this because it's usually something that presents itself in men in their 70s, not men in their you know mid-40s. That was one of the reasons they didn't pick it up was because I wasn't old enough to have this. So they weren't looking for it.
0: And then what was your final diagnosis again?
1: It was called a full heart block. So uh, you can go on the Cleveland Clinic website. The Cleveland Clinic is the premier cardiac hospital in America. And if you put in to whatever search bar you're using, Cleveland Clinic full heart block, um, you'll get a nice video from one of the doctors there explaining what a full heart block is and It's like a three or five minute video. It's nothing, but it makes it a lot easier to understand than whatever I can say to to the audience. So, um, So I worked on myself and I exercised and I studied lots and I learned lots and I was making some progress and I was feeling like I could go back to teaching again and then this happened all over again so i was out riding my bike one time in a park far far away from where i live and then all of a sudden i was on the ground again and uh, unconscious and this happened a few dozen more times and the doctors again couldn't figure out what was happening because i had the pacemaker which is you know supposed to prevent this from happening and they kept testing the pacemaker and not seeing any flaws. Um, And then a couple of months into this, one of the doctors just happened to put his hand over the pacemaker and push, and he saw that it disrupted the pacemaker. So what had happened is the pacemaker has two wires for me that run to my heart that carry the signals from the pacemaker to the heart. I guess I should have explained that pacemaker is like a little supercomputer that replaces the the beating of your heart. One of the pacemaker leads had cracked the insulation on it cracked and it kept shorting out and when it shorted out um, it didn't send the signals and my heart would stop again. So that was what was happening. So this is you know sort of adversity (laughs) 2.0. So they decided they were going to try and replace the pacemaker lead. And we went in for surgery. And I didn't know now they had switched surgery procedures. So now they do this while you're awake. So they just numb the area. Like, you know, when you go to a dentist with lidocaine or whatever they use, and, um, and they use uh, some sort of laser scalpel. So, you get to see this huge monitor in front of you um, that keeps uh, track of all your your vital statistics. You know your heart rate and your blood pressure and stuff like that. Um, and I knew before it showed up on the board that my heart had stopped again, and then I was gone, and uh, I came to they revive me with some thing called, I call them pacing pads. I can't remember what they're actually called, but they send a current through your body to replace the signal that's not, the electrical signal that's not going through. And it hurts. It really, really hurts because they err on the caution of giving you too much electricity versus not enough to get your heart to beat. So it feels like you're, You know getting kicked in the ribs continuously um so it's not very pleasant and you know when i realized what had happened i said to whoever you know please stop this is like unbelievably painful and they said shut up you know we're trying to save your life it was actually it was a lot more rude than shut up but uh and then another doctor says no don't shut up we want to know that you're okay so this went on for i don't know how long and they decided they had to get a temporary pacemaker uh, which they thread up through your femoral artery uh into your heart and uh and all the chaos that was going on. Because it's not like on a TV show or in a movie, when the, you know, the eight people you need to be on this trauma team just shows up immediately. And they have all the medications and all the right tools to do everything. Um, this was a, a little bit of a, a mishmash. And then people didn't know where to find a temporary pacemaker. And then they only brought back half of it and they had to go back and find the other half. And it it was just insane. But in all that confusion, somebody was supposed to have sterilized my groin and put in some, uh, numbing medication because they were going to have to cut me open so that they could insert the new pacemaker wire. And they forgot to do that. So that was, uh, an incredibly painful experience again that I wouldn't want to go through, uh, nor would I wish it on anybody. Um, but they they finally did it, and uh, but I was left, you know, not having had my actual condition repaired. So the temporary pacemaker was in such a precarious position that I was on bed rest for a week. I was not allowed to move. Uh, because they were worried it would disconnect from my heart. And I had to wait until they made sure I didn't get an infection from uh, where they cut me open. And then we went for round two. (laughs) So um, round two, this is actually supposed to be a 20, 25-minute procedure because they they do about 800,000 pacemaker insertions a year across the world and you know they've been doing this for 30 40 years so they they've got it down so when stuff like this happens to me it's just off the charts rare so the uh, second attempt at this surgery um, the doctors could not get the new wire in to replace the old one and i was on the operating table for hours And I'd wake up because I would fall asleep because they were, you know, doing whatever they were trying to do. And I'd wake up and the doctor was on a video chat with another doctor halfway around the world trying to figure out, you know, a workaround for this. And uh, I don't know what exactly they did at the end, but somehow they they got it in. And uh, apparently I was I was cured, so to speak. Uh, and I had a functioning pacemaker again. and uh, But then I had to go through all the rehab and everything that, that I did the first time. So I had to, you know, do some higher end learning and more exercise and all those sorts of things. And again, I was just about ready to go back to work when in 2018, this happened all over again, again, if that makes sense and uh, the lead cracked. And what what we've learned subsequently is that I had a vein, the vein that they slide the the lead through had collapsed. And that's likely what, it was now too tight, and that's likely what caused the lead to to crack. And this is just a theory, Um, we can't prove it, but we think something happened in the first surgery back in 2009 uh, that forced the vein to collapse. And it just didn't damage the lead enough until a few years later, uh, and then everything went crazy. So in this 2018 uh, surgery, of course, it didn't go according to plan. The plan was supposed to be just put in an entire new pacemaker on the right side of my chest with two new leads, and we would turn this this one off but again they couldn't get one of the leads in so the doctors were again like you know how do we fix this so they eventually figured out a system where the sensors on the new pacemaker would recognize when the old pacemaker failed and they would kick in Um, but it's not an exact science so I had many episodes after that where I'd have, you know, 10, 20, 30 seconds of my heart stopping or going into a fibrillation uh, because the sensors were, you know, not coordinating well. Eventually, we've got it, you know, down to a science and I haven't had an incident for a year. So I'm pretty happy about that. Uh, The downside is that the battery in the original pacemaker (laughs) is going to die soon, and I'm going to have to have another surgery, so I'm not really looking forward to that and what mayhem might come after that.
0: Well, Fred, thank you so much for sharing that with our audience, and I am very sorry that repeatedly happened to you, so... Have you ever counted how many times that your heart stopped at this point?
1: We think it's around 60. Wow. So sometimes, you know, it would have happened while I was sleeping anyway, so I wouldn't really have been aware of it. And you know, it's uh, it'll make for a good book, hopefully.
0: So, have you ever met people around the world who has endured this OHA block issues, conditions?
1: You know, that's not something I've ever asked my cardiologists. Um, but it's a good question. I I don't think it's uncommon, but I don't know that you know, because mostly it happens, as I said, with uh, men in their seventies so you know that's not um a group of men i tend to hang out with and and know what is going on with them medically but you you've made me think well i am going to send my cardiologist an email and uh, and ask how common this this uh, affliction is
0: Yes, I have no idea, but um, I'm a journalist and I've covered some rare disease stories. And then um, some of the disease uh, that's very uh, rare, it's called Phila McDonald's syndrome. And one of my uh, friend's son has it. And then it's deletion of chromosome 22. And I think 22 or 23, I'm sorry. But anyways, um, one of the chromosome is deleted. And then so, but they didn't know uh, the diagnosis until later on. Mm -hmm my friend's son's life now i think the cases were a few hundred when he was diagnosed like 18 years ago but now it's over 2,000 cases now they have the foundation they have a facebook group page so you might have some facebook private group closed group um Mm -hmm. i'm not sure but i'm just curious to see how many cases are there in the world for full heart block condition i've never heard of it And again, um, your case is very young and then rare. Um, However, there might be cases for women or maybe younger generations. And I don't know what is causing this. Have we ever discussed the doctor, what is the cause of this full heart block? And Do they kind of have an answer or not really?
1: They do not have an answer. Um, I get my pacemaker checked every three months and uh, you know, not every time is is the surgeon around to to visit. But I keep asking him any idea because they're learning new things all the time. Nope, we don't know why your heart stopped. We don't know why it started again all these times. So, and do
0: you when your heart stops and then going to kind of unconscious mode, and then when you come back? So you know, sometimes people say, "Okay, I saw some white light or like you know, some visions or something." Do you have any mm-hmm. thing like that?
1: I wish I did because it's a much better story, um, and um, I, I did not. Um, I what I experienced I will call a brain quake, and I would feel my. It would feel like my brain was just like shaking like crazy for you know, a second, second and a half. And then I was just gone. Everything faded to black. And then however, whatever time period passed, then I would start to come back to life. Um, So the dying part was relatively easy. The coming back to life part was horrific, actually. Um, What I remember from that is seeing... It was like being in the middle of the most intense fireworks display you could ever imagine. So the colors were so bright that even though I was unconscious, they were hurting my eyes. And I could actually feel all the explosions. So I was like getting battered around and battered around. And I don't know how long this lasted, um, but it was certainly unpleasant. And, uh, you know, you don't feel good for a number of days. After you you come back to life from something like this. I did have a couple of of out-of-body experiences that are also pretty uh, strange. You know, you feel yourself. So I don't know if that's your soul trying to escape from your body and, you know, ascend to, well, heaven, hopefully. Uh, or, uh, Or it's just some weird trick that your brain plays on you. But I've definitely seen myself, you know, lying on the ground in a number of positions, feeling very confused and, or I guess my, whatever was looking down on me, feeling very confused, not knowing what to do. Um, And then, you know, fortunately I came back to life.
0: So So I've never had that many times, but I had one time that I completely passed out from, massive blood loss for miscarriage in the bathroom. So I lost oh. more than more than 50% of blood in the bathroom in an hour. And I was, I remember like, it was just like massive circulation. It's almost like all the walls are wobbling. And then all of a sudden I just passed out. But then when I gained the consciousness, when the EMT got there, my blood pressure was 60 on high. So I was just dying. I was 60. Oh. Then, um, yeah. I started to gain consciousness. I remember like feeling like, Oh my gosh, I feel like I slept like seven days or something. It was like <laughs> the longest sleep ever, or like maybe the deepest, like sleep, um, mm. that I felt. And but, anyways, um, it's very, very scary experience. And then I just want to move on to the tools that you use to overcome these repeatedly adversity that um, you had to endure. What are the tools that you use to maybe uh, overcome this adversity?
1: So besides the exercise, which is generally good for, for everybody, and learning, which is generally good for everybody, um, in February of 2018, I was in my cardiologist's office. And he came into the exam room, and he threw a book at me. And the name of this book is The Obesity Code by Dr. Jason Fung. And he's a nephrologist here in Toronto, a kidney specialist. And um, he uses intermittent fasting to help reverse uh, type 2 diabetes in many of his patients. Uh, he's world famous for for what he's doing now, and my cardiologist said, "Buy this, read this, do this," but only after we talk to all your other doctors and get clearance from all of them, because you know there could be things that with intermittent fasting that might not have worked for you. So it took about two months for all my doctors to get on board with this, and that's when I started, and the cardiologists at the time uh, really were just looking at intermittent fasting as a weight loss tool and they really didn't understand that there's an entire other side of intermittent fasting that starts all these processes and epigenetic processes going on in your body that helps you heal like you couldn't believe so that's uh, that's been primarily what I've been doing along with the exercise and learning for the last three or four years. Um, it was so effective for me that I ended up being a moderator in a Facebook group with about 335,000 members. So, um, so there aren't many questions about intermittent fasting that I can't answer. I'm sure there are. Um, and I guess just a little medical disclaimer. Um, If you're going to try something like intermittent fasting and you're on medications or anything like that, please check with your appropriate doctors uh, before you do stuff because your medications may have to be adjusted as you go. Mine certainly were. Um, And in general, if you're pregnant or breastfeeding or you've had a history of eating disorders, it's probably not a good idea to, to go into the intermittent fasting world.
0: So I've heard of intermittent fasting, and how does it work? It's like eight hours. Um, you can eat within like eight hours or something.
1: That's one of the protocols. There, there's actually dozens of ways you can do it, which is good because we all have different lives, and we all have different bio-individuality. So the protocols that work for me might not necessarily work for you or somebody much older than you, uh, or, you know, somebody who's just been pregnant, or whatever the situation. And especially if you've been overweight your entire life, uh, or been a yo-yo dieter, intermittent fasting seems to want to heal your body first and get everything regulating properly uh, before it gets into the weight loss part. So when I started, I was fasting 12 hours and had an eating window of 12 hours. And because we didn't know what was going to happen with me, so we went very conservatively. And um, it worked really well. Within, I think, three months, I was able to do 24-hour fasts. And I should mention these aren't dry fasts. So you, know, you can drink plain water, black coffee, green tea, um, no sweeteners, no, uh, no cream, no cinnamon, no lemon, stuff like that. So, um, And then I went from there and uh, I've lost probably 10 sizes, 10 pant sizes um, in about a year. So it was pretty quick for me.
0: Wow. So are you still doing intermittent fasting?
1: I am. Um and I've got some other adversity. I went through COVID uh last April. And I had a particularly nasty case. And the COVID affects your gut biome and um so it's been quite difficult for me to get back to the levels of fasting that I was doing before, but I'm making progress and, uh, I'm sure I'll be back on track very, very soon.
0: So what do you do? You just don't eat 12 hours.
1: Um, now I, I do more longer fast. So I eat 22 hours and then, you know, I'll have two hours that I can eat. That doesn't mean you eat for two hours straight or 12 hours straight or whatever your eating window is. That just means you know, you can have your one meal a day or your meal and a snack or a meal and a snack and dessert or however you want to work it um, during that, what we call the eating window. So some people do much longer fasts a couple of times a week. They do alternate day fasting. And uh, before I got COVID, I was doing a 40 hour fast twice a week. Wow so um and those are fun it's a little more of a mental game than a physical game Um, because once once your body gets all your hormones stabilized and operating the way you're very much more in touch with things like your hunger signals and satiety signals. so you understand what true hunger is and you understand when you're full and it's time to stop eating and a lot of us in, you know, on the standard North American diets um, reading so much sugar and bad fats and oils and things like that, that our body just can't send us the signals we need to, you know, live our best life.
0: Yes, I've done master cleansing, seven days master cleansing with water, uh, lemon juice, cayenne pepper and maple mm-hmm. syrup twice in my life. And that was like mental Yes, you know, and <laughs> stuff. But it actually helped my gut, intestine, digestion a lot. um prior for sure. to, yeah, prior to the master cleansing, I really had digestion problems. So then after that, I really never had the digestion problem. Uh, um, for the for after the first one, and then the second one, it was easier, much easier mm-hmm. than the first one i thought i was gonna die but you know the uh, second one was like no i knew what to expect so i was maybe gonna <laughs> go to eat they ate but then i just said no i should eat so i went back but i've definitely heard of intimate fasting and then heard some really great effects so i'm, I'm really happy that it's working for you and then it's helping you <laughs> it. and thank you so much for sharing. Now let's actually move on to our last question, which is a gift that came from the adversity. So how would you describe a gift that came from this? Uh,
1: I think the gift that's come from this is I went down this journey and I actually found intermittent fasting and have learned how much it can help people. So I've become an intermittent fasting coach and I've helped probably hundreds of people um, whether it's getting rid of an autoimmune disease or their hair stops falling out or they lose weight or all the inflammation in their body goes away like it did for me um, there's just so many things that that it does as a byproduct of fasting and I get to change people's lives for the positive now you know before I was a professor so I you know I help kids you know get a career path. And, and hopefully gave them some wisdom. But this is something, you know, you get to see people's quality of life improving. And I find that incredibly rewarding.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I totally like no, appreciate you mm-hmm. willing to share this knowledge that you actually use to overcome your adversity and these medical challenges. Because so many people like who had maybe discovered this, Tools that worked for them. Maybe they don't think it's important to share, but I think it's very important to share, just like I'm doing mm-hmm. uh, with that podcast where I wanted to create a, a safe platform where people can talk about adversity and tools and then gift that came from it without having any stigma.
1: Mm-hmm. For sure. I think you're doing an amazing thing.
0: Thank you very much, Fred. So, what is your last word for our audience?
1: Oh, um, there's a psychiatrist named Viktor Frankl that came through the Holocaust. Um, I forget the name of his book, which I, I shouldn't. But um, Man's Search for Meaning, might be. But one of his quotes is, if you have hope, you can overcome anything. And And I believe that's true. And it's not like hope is... You know, like gas prices now, there's a limited supply. There's as much hope as you want to grab onto and as you can grab onto that can help prepare you um, or propel you into the future to to get where you need to be.
0: Well, great. Thank you very much for uh, coming to a gift from our tonight. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you. My pleasure as well. Have also- a good night.
0: Yes. And thank you for our audience for tuning into another episode of A Gift from University. And then we have more guests coming in the month of March and April and May. And I'm very excited to host all the guests that are coming in the past. And you can check out A Gift from University on Facebook and anchor.fm and then Spotify. See you next time.